Stay hungry, stay foolish. As always, thanks to our sponsor, Zai. Zai is a global fintech which is innovating within its own field of expertise, building integrated financial services for digital native and non-native businesses. To check them out, and please do, they are a sponsor of the show. Please support them, and therefore you're sponsoring us. Go to hellozai.com. What drives a 64-year-old woman to hurl herself off Niagara Falls in a barrel? Why do we often create bigger risks than the risks we try to avoid? Why are corporate boards worried about risky personal behavior of their CEOs? Why are some nations quicker to recognize threats and risks like pandemics, technological change, and climate crisis? The answers define each person, each organization, and society as distinctively as a fingerprint. Understanding the often surprising origins of these risk fingerprints can open our eyes, inspire new habits, catalyze innovation and creativity, inspire teamwork, and provide a beacon in a world that seems suddenly more uncertain than ever before. How you see risk and what you do about it depend on your personality and experiences. How you make these cost-benefit calculations depend on your culture, your values, the people in the room, and even unexpected things like what you've eaten recently, the temperature, the music playing, or the fragrance in the air. Being alert to these often unconscious influences will help you seize opportunity and avoid danger. Today's book is a clarion call for an entirely new conversation about our relationship with risk and uncertainty. Our guest examines why it's important to understand your risk fingerprint and how to make your risk relationship work better in life, in business life, and in the world in general. She shares insights, practical tools, and proven strategies that will help you understand what makes you who you are and in turn to make better choices, both big and small. We welcome friend of the Innovation Show and author of You Are What You Risk, Michelle Walker. Welcome back to the show. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. That was a mouthful there. And I only I, I took out so much there, Michelle, because there's so much in the book. I as always, I love your writing. And I really enjoyed it. I love your style of writing. And um, I have a little surprise for you. I see behind you there, you have your beautiful image of the rhino. I'll let you tell a little bit about that in a second. But if you can see here, I always try and wear a pin to reflect the show. And here I have a little a rhino holding a balloon. So it was the closest I, I could get. He's gray, by the way, as well, which is useful. But the, the image behind you is meaningful. And for those of people who are watching us, I'll let you, Michelle, you describe what it is, because it's something I saw in your brilliant newsletter. And you wrote a, a fantastic blog about that. And then we'll get into the book. Sure. Well, um, you can see there's a big rhino across this dystopian cityscape, and there's a little girl standing in front of it. It's sort of like, you know, Banksy meets fearless girl from Wall Street. And uh, I don't know if you can see in the image there, but uh, but she's got a paintbrush with fuchsia paint, and she's just painted the rhino's toenails fuchsia, which is so awesome. Um, and I I got this on a, on a day in in July 2017. Uh, the Chinese government adopted the ideas in The Grey Rhino, my last book, uh, about how to take a fresh look and do better at dealing with big, obvious problems. And uh, they had just used the idea in their National Financial Work Conference, which sets financial policy for the next five years. And there was a big official front page editorial 
editorial in People's Daily, the official newspaper, uh, saying you need to watch out for gray rhino financial risks. And that included real estate, which, of course, you've seen in the news quite a bit lately. Um, but it was so it generated headlines all over the world. All these reporters were, were calling me. And so I went down to uh, WGN Radio here in Chicago, uh, which at the time was in the in the old Chicago Tribune building, which they've just turned into condominiums, which makes my head want to explode. Um, but beautiful Gothic, Gothic landmark. And WGN Radio at the time was in this sort of fishbowl studio looking right out onto Michigan Avenue and looking out onto this art fair. And I had a friend in town who came down to the interview with me. And so afterwards, you know, the interview was all about this, you know, gray rhino crashing the Chinese stock market and making headlines around the world. And so it was a bit of a celebratory day. So I go out to the art fair with my friend and I see this. It's, it's actually a print on, on metal. And just thought this is this is a sign. This is absolutely perfect. So I got to I got to chat with the with the artist, and then of course when we started doing all things by by Zoom over the past year, I put it up in my background, and I was getting so many questions about it. So I reached back out to the the artist uh, Matthew Colianese, who who calls himself the Pig Shark, uh, which is based on a. a art piece he did early on because he says nobody can remember or pronounce my last name. And so I little, did a little interview with him about it. And so you can see it on my blog at thegrayrhino.com. And it's also up on uh, on LinkedIn about how he created uh, this picture. The The little girl was was actually inspired by a friend's daughter. We actually started working on it before the Fearless Girl statue went up. And, you know, he hadn't, you know, Banksy was somewhere on his radar, but it wasn't, you know, a deliberate connection. So I just... I absolutely love it. And I love that other people love it too. Yeah, it's fantastic. And you can see behind me, I have the Grey Rhino. We had an awesome show. It's probably about a year ago now where we covered the Grey Rhino. Almost exactly yeah, it was, a year. It was, it was just after the pandemic hit, actually. But we talked about this. And maybe as a quick refresher, let's share what the Grey Rhino is because it's been a runaway success, excuse the pun for you, <laughs> of this char a charging success. But what I found really interesting is where it intersects with this book is it was more successful in certain territories. And if you zoom out and you understand you are what you risk, certain territories have more risk tolerance or not. So your book actually will be deemed more valuable in certain territories, depending on the risk tolerance or the risk appetite in those places. Yeah. And well, you know, what's interesting to me is actually, I think both books are even more valuable to the people who don't know how valuable they are, which is a bit paradoxical. Um, but but The Grey Rhino came out in 2016. It was my effort to explore the question of why some people, decision makers, see a big dangerous thing coming at them. Some people freeze, some people do something to just get out of the way, maybe it runs over the person behind them. And other people look at it and say, here's a problem that needs to be solved, and they turn it into an opportunity. And so the rhino was a metaphor in the in the great old tradition of, of Aesop, and other people have used uh, animals to help humans to understand ourselves. And, and the idea is really to, uh, to make an emotional connection and get ourselves to take a fresh look at the obvious things. You know, you imagine this big gray rhino coming at you and what are you going to do about it? And it's it's gray because if you look at rhinos and ask yourself what color they're well they're well they're they're gray. I mean, depending a little bit on what color of mud they've been rolling around in, but it should be really obvious that they're gray. But there are five species of rhinos that still walk the earth, and one of those species is black, and the other one is white, 
even though neither one of those is actually the color. And so that to me seemed to be a, a great way to talk about how much more likely we are than we want to admit to take our eyes off of the obvious thing. So Gray Rhino came out in 2016 in the United States. All my friends who had books come out that year were so frustrated because, you know, election campaign, uh, this book came out. Uh, we had a standing room only book launch on the upper side of Upper West Side of Manhattan two weeks before the presidential primary. And so, of course, anything that wasn't Trump versus Hillary, you know, <laughs> you, you just didn't... Um, you know, you just couldn't get the news. So there's a little pushback. Um, and there was also this real black swan culture in the US, this idea that, you know, black swan is something you can't picture, you can't imagine. So it's it was meant to get people to broaden their imaginations and realize that they're more vulnerable to things that they can't even imagine, but you can't do anything about it. And so instead, it got badly misused as a cop-out in, in hindsight. And so I think that the United States in particular still has that kind of black swan culture, this lack of responsibility. So the gray rhino came out in China in uh, early 2017 and immediately was a huge bestseller. It had been out a couple of weeks and my editor emailed me and she said, you'll be happy to know it's in its third printing, 30,000 copies. And I said, is that is that with, with four zeros? She says, yes. And of course, it's, you know, it's 10 times that much now. And it was, it has been very influential in China. But, you know, one of the questions that actually led to You Are What You Risk was, how come some countries are so sensitive to risk, they pay so much attention to it, and paradoxically, the more attention you pay to it, the more you recognize it and do something about it, actually the rest, less risk there is. And so you get this very interesting feedback loop uh, between when you're aware and thinking about risks, you are reducing them. And so that actually allows you to take risks that in another culture might be seen as bigger risks, but objectively, they're actually smaller because you've you've done more to deal with them. So it, it kind of blows out of the water this idea that you can calculate a risk, you know, assign a credit rating, I mean, like we did with the subprime mortgages, <laughs> which didn't work out real well in uh, 2007, 2008. You know, we see it in everyday life with, with weather forecasts, but even that forecast, you know, 40% chance of rain today, one person will say, oh, I better bring the umbrella. And some person, another person will say, oh, pff, don't bother. You know, they, they, even if it's 90%, they don't bother. And someone else is superstitious and says, well, if I bring the umbrella, then that means it won't rain. So everybody looks at this set number and it's something completely different to everyone. And the, since the great financial crisis, there's been so much more attention to making lists of risks and assigning probabilities and impact and blah, 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 you know, and lots of that. But we're only starting to get the attention that we need on risk governance, on how we respond to risks, and in particular, this this feedback loop that I was talking about. But, you know, with climate change, the more you pay attention to it and do something about it, the smaller the risk becomes. But you have to be aware. And that's part of these risk fingerprints that, that I'm talking about. You know, how much attention do you pay about risk, pay to risk, and why? How much of that's from your innate personality? How much of it is from, you know, the policy ecosystem in your in your community, in your in your country? How much of it is from your experiences and the people around you? So it becomes sort of like a a room full of funhouse mirrors. But understanding all of these elements is such a powerful tool for making your own decisions about risk and doing a better job about it.
You were so kind to write a endorsement for my book at the time when actually you were finalizing the manuscript. And I'm so grateful because I didn't know you were going through that at the time. And, and you did take the time to read the book and stuff like that. But I, I, I say that to say, I saw such a correlation between one of the things I talk about is the change appetite in organizations. And I, I often think about it like a change thermostat that everybody's thermostat is set to a different setting. So it's a feedback mechanism that's like, okay, when the temperature hits this temperature, this happens and fear kicks in. And I thought about the same thing with risk because you found this though, even though you wrote the gray rhino, which is in a way is a mirror of you are what you risk, you wrote it for businesses and governments in mind, it resonated massively with individuals and so many individuals got in touch with you about their own gray rhino experiences. Yeah, it was it was really surprising to me. And I actually I, w I was uh, looking back through the book recently, and there is a line near the bottom, you know, suggesting that this is, you know, this might help you deal with your own personal gray rhinos. But, you know, my my best friend used it in a career uh, situation. She was she was working for a uh, a state fund, a state college at the time, and uh, government government came in that was very slashed the budget. And she says, okay, I need to come up with a plan B, went to library school, and is now you know, very happily ensconced as as a librarian. But she talked about the gray rhino during that and her mother was diagnosed with Parkinson's. And she used the book for that. And, you know, another woman said to me, you know, the end of my marriage was a gray rhino. All my friends were trying to tell me and I, I didn't want to see it. And uh, there was a guy in Indiana who wrote this beautiful blog post about breast cancer, actually. A friend of his was diagnosed with breast cancer and she was like, all right, you know, very aggressive treatment. She got on it right away. And then he went and he ran a, uh, a, a marathon to raise funds for breast cancer research. And uh, there was an eighth grader in Bangalore who used the gray rhino in a project on uh, digital addiction. Uh, she had this big digital detox project that she took all the way to the United Nations. And at all of my readings all around the world, people would ask me, how do I apply this to my personal life? And, and one young guy in, in Shanghai in the summer of 2017 uh, had come to the, the book event and there were huge storms. It, it, was, it really took a lot of effort to get there. In fact, I almost didn't get there <laughs> because uh, because of the, the my flight was canceled and I had to take a plane, in, a, a train instead. But he came up to me, he wanted the selfie and the autograph. And he says, you helped me so much with my life. And I almost wanted to say, oh, is there there's someone standing behind me? Because, <laughs> I mean, you know, like I'm a big geek, right? You know, policy, finance, strategy. Um, I'm happy as a clam with spreadsheets. And I didn't really think of myself as a, as a self-help person, but people were responding organically to this. And uh, I also got a lot of of questions about the relationship between what was going on. There was a talk I did in Milwaukee and a nurse was talking about how people were coming in with mental health you know, stress issues because of all this high level policy discussion about whether we were gonna continue Obamacare or not. And so there, there was a real connection there. And I struggled with this, I didn't know what to do. So I called a friend of mine who was a really great sounding board during The Great Rhino, um, Jeff Leonard, who was a, a CEO of a private equity firm. And he said, you know, Michelle, there's more of a connection between this personal and business and policy than you think. He says, you know, our 
our investment committee met recently about the things that didn't turn out. And in every case, we look back and the red flags were there in the due diligence, but we didn't pay as much attention to them because they weren't the business model or the macroeconomic situation or the quality of the product itself. He said, it was the bad personal risk decisions by the CEO. You know, it was the, uh, you know, cheating on Ashley Madison. It was uh, drunk driving. It was domestic violence. It was speeding. And there since then has actually been a lot of research confirming a correlation between, say, you know, whether you were one of the people in the Ashley Madison spousal cheating website database breach and whether you were doing securities violations. And so he said, you know, Michelle, you really need to look at this this connection. And of course, I delved into it quite a bit more and found out that uh, a lot of these corporate due diligence firms were now specifically looking into the CEO's risk behaviors and that boards, corporate boards are paying a lot more attention. You know, we saw that the situation at, uh, at WeWork with some of the very eccentric behavior by the, by the founder, you know, throwing tantrums that people didn't have the right kind of tequila and walking around barefoot. And, um, there was another firm whose, um, whose CEO was, uh, was bragging about, uh, a, a relationship with uh, someone in the news and their insurance company came and said, you know, we're not going to insure you anymore if this guy's the CEO. He's just bad at taking taking personal risks. So I realized there too that there was there was a feedback loop and it was a big risk decision as I was writing the book because, you know, publishers like things to be packaged very nicely. Like this is a business book. This is a current affairs book. This is a self-help book. And I really struggled because that's not how people package books, but I felt like this this feedback loop was so important in understanding any one of those elements. And I felt like I needed to address all of them. And it was actually a strength, even though it was a big risk publishing-wise. And it's like a Gordian knot. I mean, you can't change what people do till you change what they think. You know, 75% plus, percent plus of business transformations fail and we all look to the technical reasons it failed, but it's actually people. It's people at the heart of the transformations. And I wanted to share something because the last time we spoke, you shared a personal grey rhino that was coming for you, which was dental care, which was actually going to the dentist yourself. But you reveal this time when you reflected it wasn't quite the real risk or the real rhino that was actually coming for you. And and I want to share this one because this is really important. Many CEOs and change makers and change agents within organizations listen to the show. And we have a tendency to overwork. And you realize through writing this book, actually, one of the risks I've been taking is my own health. And I wanted to quote this because you say this, and I think it's important for people out there to look after both their mental health and their physical health, you say, I'm fortunate, because when I am unhappy or stressed, I feel it physically. And therefore, that becomes a warning sign that I need to do something. And many of us suppress that. And we keep going thinking we're some type of hero. And actually, when you think about it and zoom out, you go, well, why am I working in the first place? I shouldn't be living to work, I should be working to live. Yeah, it's true. And it's it's really changed uh, over time. And it goes back to uh, partly, you know, how how I was raised. I mean, my, my dad was a private school educator, and uh, we didn't have great family dental insurance, you know, and, and we had pretty good genes, you know, good, good teeth. 
Um, so, you know, we didn't go to the dentist a lot when I was a kid and that sort of stretched into my, my twenties and I had almost like a phobia. And, um, so for years it was, you know, they'd say come every six months and I'd be like, uh, you know, push out. He kept pushing out. And then I was diagnosed with celiac disease, which does a number on your gums. I, they still haven't come up with a good explanation as why, but, but my, uh, you know, periodontal surgeon was like, oh yeah, celiac disease. Oh, pfft. Got it. So, um, so then I ended up having to have some some gum surgeries, and now I go every three months, and I, you know I still have have issues. Um, but it uh, it was really that that upbringing of you know starting out with not having gotten gotten into the habit early of of going to the dentist, and then I had to change my habits uh, going forward. And it was, you know, certain experiences. I mean, when, you know, the first, the first gum surgery that actually it didn't take all the way ahead of another one of, of, you know, a couple months later. And uh, so that changed my behaviors because I, you know, once you have this shock and you experience really bad consequences, you change what you do. And what I'm trying to get people to do is, is to think about the consequences, to picture them, to, you know, look at what your friends have experienced to hear what other people have done so that you don't have to get to that point before you change your behavior and health. You know, similarly, you know, when I was, when I was young, uh, when I was in, in high school, my mom went back to school. And so I was like, you know, watching all the kids and, um, you know, I was at a, at a new school in Texas and it was like overworked myself quite a bit. And that just became a habit. And, you know, I didn't learn anything otherwise. And so I, you know, while watching these kids, I finished finished high school in three years and had a part-time job that paid for me to spend the summer in Europe after high school. And I look back now and I look at those those habits that later in life I had to unlearn. And, you know, I interviewed a couple of younger people in the book, uh, including a, a woman who, when I interviewed her, she was about to, to graduate college. She was in her last year of college. And she was talking about her decisions about, uh, you know, what kind of career she wanted and whether she was going to go study abroad and things like that. And she was asking herself questions about, you know, about burnout, about health, about personal growth, about what she was comfortable with that I wish I had known to ask myself way back then. And you know we've evolved in the things that that we learn or like leadership training, which I you know until you know ten or fifteen years ago I would have told you was the most ridiculous thing ever. In fact, I one of my earlier jobs they made me take a, a management training course, which I didn't realize was a sign that oh they think you're going places. But it was it was this one of these silly exercises where you have to you have a team and you you have some string and some some uh, uh, tongue depressors and some cups and you're making it, it was some you know, cheesy experiment and experience. And I was for the first time in my life, I was like the really the bad kid in the back of the room who was acting out and not paying attention because I thought it was so stupid. And, you know, it wasn't until later that I, I understood uh, some of the power of that. But um, but later on, when I got involved with the, with the World Economic Forum, the Forum of Young Global Leaders, and they did a lot of leadership training, some of those questions are so powerful and, and they're the reasons that I actually started writing books again after having sort of sat out uh, for several years. So it's, it's really powerful. The experiences you have, the, the places you look for learning, the people who you are in touch with, and then what you do with that. Yeah, and I love that what you said there about the, say the leadership training, like so we, we say, for example, innovation happens at the intersections of all the literature shows that and you yourself 
the intersections of your different disciplines have led to this book, which is a, a key output of the book, as well as that you look at biases, cognitive biases. We all have them. If we're human, we have biases, etc. And it's one of the reasons you mentioned, I was hoping you weren't going to slam it too much. I do executive coaching. And one of the reasons, though, is because you can't look at organizational development or change initiatives and innovation without looking at the people. They're, they're so intersectional. And this idea of looking in the mirror and understanding what drives me, what doesn't, etc. And then one of the things that the book does for us, your book, is gives us extreme empathy, I feel, to go, I'm not going to be judgmental of someone else. I have no idea what's happening in the background. And this gets me to this question. You share a beautiful story of your Boban, uh, your grandmother, and that and the experiences you grew up with and, and the observation of those as a child have an undoubted impact on your own tolerance of risk in the future. And this happened for you. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah, so, so my grandmother, you know, Bobon, she was, uh, she was uh, a Belgian. Um, it lived just outside of Brussels. And uh, our family was, was very deeply affected by the war. I mean, you know, the, the Nazis came in and, you know, they, they took the wine cellar, they, they you know, occupied the houses, they, they killed all the family's pigeons. And, and Bobon was in, in her teens at the time, and she was riding her bicycle for the resistance, like taking messages, which, you know, was kind of a big risk uh, you know, for, for a very good purpose. And that's where she met my, my grandfather, who's an American GI. And um, so they, he actually tried to start a popcorn business in Belgium, which was ahead of its time. Um, they, they still thought that the popcorn was pig food. And I wish he could see Garrett popcorn here in Chicago, like super high end premium, amazing, wonderful popcorn. I, every time I go there, I think of my, my, my grandpa, but, uh, my, my bon papa. So, so they came to the, to the States, um, when, uh, when my mother was, was three and, um, they, you know, I think a lot of her life was shaped by this, it, this is this real, combination of having done these daring things. And I mean, moving to a new country where you don't know anyone is, is kind of a big deal. Um, but she also, in parts of her life, she really made preparations. So when, when she died, in uh, it was a little over a decade ago, her freezer was full from the top to the bottom with, you know, you know, 10 years worth of garden vegetables, but frozen butter, pounds and pounds of butter. The cupboards were full of, you know, pounds and pounds of sugar. So, you know, there was no chance she was going to run out of that. And I actually, I just used the last sheet of aluminum from these boxes and boxes of aluminum. So she was not going to run out of that stuff. But, but you know, when it came to other things like her health, she had a, an a abdominal aneurysm. And the doctor said, once it gets to five centimeters, it's riskier to leave it in than to do the surgery to take it out. She, you know, it was six and a half before they let her take it out. And and there was another time where um, my mom hadn't been able to reach her. So she went over and Bobon had, she had all these big uh, giant cathode ray tube televisions all, all around the house. And, and she'd been trying to lift one of them. I mean, you know, 80-something-year-old woman with abdominal abdominal aneurysm. She threw out her back and she'd been on the floor for a couple of days. And she still, she wouldn't let my mom take her to the to emergency room until my mom just finally had to put her feet down. And so it was this weird mix of being very, very risk conscious and prepared in parts of her life and not at all in other parts of her life. And so we saw that contrast between, you know, when she died, there was, you know, the, you know, the financial 
arrangements weren't in place. It was a complete mess. And then you had my dad's parents who were, my, my, my grandpa was actually also an entrepreneur. He had a, a hardware store. Uh, it, was, it was an ACE franchise in Milwaukee. But they had everything just perfectly organized. Like all the financial stuff was perfectly in order. They had the menu for the funeral. They had the, the gravestones. Everything except for the, the date of death was already carved in there. And so it's this like complete difference. And so in my family, there was this constant clash of risk attitudes. In fact, I remember going to church when I was a kid, my my parents would take different cars because they couldn't agree on how much time to leave to get someplace. And so I think it's probably not entirely an accident uh, that I've become obsessed with risk and and risk decisions because it was so different in my house. And it was it was like, you know, don't talk on the, the phone during a thunderstorm because you're going to get electrocuted. And then my dad, I, I like to tease him that he's still asking me if I'm still on track to graduate college in four years. <laughs> Brilliant. I love I love that story because it, it again it highlights the empathy that we can be very judgmental and I think this is the beauty of the work you do the work we learn on biases on cognitive biases and blockers because it makes us think hey you know you can't judge a behavior in isolation you got to look at the context all the time you got to zoom out and go well what what happened that influenced Boban to make those decisions and what happens all of us to make those decisions and one of those things is the economic climate at the time and I mentioned in the intro the story of Annie Edson the 60s the woman in her 60s who decides to go off Niagara Falls in a pickle barrel (laughs) and this is a great story to go well looks like a crazy decision but in her context the risk was worth it. In some ways, yes. And in other ways, no. Like when she was making the decision, definitely. And, you know, how I got that story is actually kind of a funny story. My, my best friend's daughter was in Chicago over the holidays. And uh, I went to a party, uh, a friend of hers hosted and the um, the hosts of a, 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 a video podcast, um, Cooking with Drag Queens, uh, were there. And they had just come back from Niagara Falls and were telling me that story. So that's, that's how I ended up with it. It was great because it was at a time when I was struggling. How do I and how do I open the book? And so, of course, you know, she had had a very interesting set of experiences during her life. I mean, at one point, she'd, she'd been financially reasonably well off, but her father died early, her husband died early. So here's a couple of big shocks uh, that that have the power to change how you think about things. She'd been a teacher all over the States, even in, in Mexico. So she had a lot of experience experiences with new situations. And but it was later in her life she was kind of running out of money. She needed she needed funds fast. She's trying to figure out what to do. And uh she somehow she somehow came up with this idea that like nobody had ever gone over Niagara Falls in any in a barrel before or in any way, as far as I know. And so she she had this sort of, I think, innate personality and experience that that uh, predisposed her to taking a chance. But she also, she she souped up that pickle barrel, you know, it was like padding and, you know, leather things to hold on to. And she, uh, you know, she sent her cat over the falls in the barrel ahead of time and <laughs> MVP you know, a minimal viable product of her, <laughs> yes well I have a picture of her with the barrel and the cat which I hope was after that there's sort of conflicting accounts about what what happened 
<laughs> she, she's like, uh, remember that show uh, Exhibit, Pimp My Ride? She's like, Pimp My Barrel. She was exactly. way ahead of the so game. She, and she hired this like promoter, um, which turned out to have been not a great risk decision in the end. Um, and she was, you know, checking all of the, you know, the, the, the weather. It was actually supposed to go a couple days earlier when she was still 63 and ended up going on her birthday uh, because the earlier the earlier attempt was not deemed to be good weather. And so she, you know, she went over and it was a success. And she'd had this this idea that she was going to give speeches and make money for, from speeches and stuff, but hadn't really factored in that she wasn't a great speaker. Um, and uh, I, I, the accounts I read were differing, but I, I think they were even being polite. Uh, <laughs> the way they put that. But the big, the, the other thing that she did is they had uh, said that she was in her 40s to, you know, prejudice against older women, whatever. They thought it would be a greater, better story if she was younger. And so the, the, the promoter found some other woman who was actually in her 40s and they stole the pickle barrel and they went on tour pretending that this other woman was was her. So obviously they took a risk in lying about her age and, um, you know, it was, I don't know how much uh, due diligence she did on this this promoter guy. And in the end, she lived out the rest of her life in, in, in poverty, pretty much. But, you know, you know, selling tchotchkes and memorabilia and stuff, you know, at the foot of Niagara Falls. And, uh, you know, a lot of other people tried it after her, they didn't all make it. But, but it was to me, it was a really interesting confluence of personality experiences, this sort of research that she put into it. And also, you know, I think the the times it was a, you know, turn of the century, I mean, the president had recently been uh, assassinated. I mean, you'd seen, you know, big economic booms, and, you know, uncertainty in some ways similar to today. And so you, you can't separate that personal experience from all the other things around it. And so when you're thinking about why you're making the risk decisions that you are, think about what's going on around you. And we see that in in what you see called the great resignation. You know, I saw in August, 3% of the US workforce left their jobs in, in one month alone. And people are changing the decisions that they're making. And some of the news stories describe this as, you know, they're taking more risks or, you know, less risks. And that's not the way I see it at all. I see it as they're they're measuring and prioritizing and perceiving risks differently. You know, the risk of staying at a job where the boss is a jerk and your coworkers won't get vaccinated or wear masks versus going and doing something safer. You know, the risk of being a frontline worker, uh, you know, a, a restaurant worker, a retail worker where your customers are you know, jerks and won't wear masks and won't get vaccinated. You know, they're, they're like, you know, if I'm going to be taking that kind of risk, I need to be comp- compensated properly for it. So it's it's really how all of these things come together. And you can't understand why you're making your own decisions without understanding the the broader perspective. There's a quote by the Greek philosopher Heraclitus, 544 BC, Michelle, he said, no man ever walks in the same river twice for it's not the same river and he's not the same man. And, you know, excuse the language being very masculine. It's, you know, in some cases still very much is, but that is 544 BC. So let's cut him some slack for, for the time he said it. But one of the things I wanted to emphasize about that was it's why I like the, it's my own mental model about change and risk now is the thermostat because if you take that as the environment or the economic environment changes, that's the temperature on the outside. But then my experience of what I've experienced over the past 
period of time changes, but it changes me and it changes my risk tolerance. And I say all this to say, I am a case study for you in this. Like I retired from professional sports. I didn't need to. I'd been offered a further two years in my contract from Toulouse at the time, a French club. But I retired into the 2008 financial crisis because I felt the playing field had been leveled. And I was like, oh, look to myself and to my wife. I said, you know, this is going to be difficult but I may as well do it when it's difficult for everybody. So the the change in the environment helped me make that decision. And then I used that same experience again. Last year, I went out on my own and created my own business because exactly what you said, in times of instability, people look at risk very differently. Those who feel they've nothing to lose have they feel they have a license to take a bigger risk. And this is a key point. Absolutely. And, you know, it's it's interesting, all this this wonderful uh, behavioral science work on, on cognitive biases and things like that, which, of course, I went into in, in The Grey Rhino. Um, but it's really been the past few years where the conversation has shifted a little bit uh, from saying, here are these biases humans have to understanding the variations among humans. I mean, yes, there's loss aversion, but this person is going to have more and this person is is not. There's been some work showing the effectiveness of self-awareness and, and habits to try to change your responses to, uh, you know, to these cognitive biases to, to counteract them. And that each person, yes, is susceptible to a set of universal human biases, but they don't affect us all the same way. And, you know, there's another new book, um, uh, uh, Noise, uh, by uh, Daniel Kahneman and, and, and colleagues, which actually a friend of mine in China just sent me a, a picture that it's it's right next to uh, my book in China. The, the Chinese edition just came yeah. out in uh, September. Um, and, you know, they, I think they, they, they have a little bit more focus on, okay, this is the, the, the right decision. And all these other factors that go into it are the the noise that are affecting that. And I see it very differently. That a lot of that noise is not just, you know, incidental noise. That's who we are. That's our identity as a person, as an organization, as a group, as a society. And this this idea of a right decision is just it's it's an illusion, just like the, the you know, investment grade subprime mortgage, uh, mortgage-backed securities. And I think taking into account how much perception and response plays into how we deal with a particular risk, whether it's a, a passive risk, you know, the risk of not doing something to head off a problem or an active risk, you know, making an investment or starting a business or going to school or bungee jumping. Um, you know, those those choices are different for every person. And I get asked a lot if there's an ideal risk personality, you know, a part of the the fingerprint. And, um, you know, my answer is no, but there, there is perhaps an ideal mix. There's an ideal way to optimize your circumstances for your personality. You know, if you're somebody who, who likes change, who gets bored easily, who's comfortable with uncertainty, you know, maybe a big traditional Fortune 50 corporation with lots of bureaucracy is maybe not the right environment for you. But if you're the kind of person who, you know, really likes, uh, you know, detail and structure, being at a startup might be more uncomfortable, or you might be the most valuable person 
at that startup because it's a place where everybody's all about moving quickly and, and breaking things. And it's really having that that mix. So for a for a big legacy corporation that's worried about uh, becoming obsolete or you know wanting to innovate, they should look at the the environment that they're creating. You know, is is there room for failure? Uh, is management structure flat or very hierarchical? Do people feel that they have the power to say, "Hey, I've got a great idea." that you know may or may not work but is worth exploring do people feel that they have the power to say hey this is really cool but have we thought about these possible things that could go wrong and maybe we should be thinking about that to make sure that they don't go wrong you know, before we release the product um and so it's and it's also about the mix of people you know people will often gravitate towards a particular career uh, based on their innate risk personality or the, the risk uh, risk type um, that uh, a UK consultancy that I write about, psychological uh, consultancy has has done with the, the risk type compass. You know, are you are you the kind of person who is who is going to be more adventurous? Uh, are you going to be much more prudent? You know, are you going to be methodical in dealing with the risk? Are you completely impulsive? Are you anxious? Does risk stress you out? Are you so calm that maybe you're not paying attention to risk that you ought to be. And having a mix of those of those personalities is very important. And a lot of industries tend to have people who've gravitated toward that industry because they are of similar risk types. And they don't have the variety that they need to to offset the strengths of one of those types and uh, I mean to, to offset the weaknesses of one of those types and to to really capitalize on the the benefits of one of those types. It's it's a huge issue in in board governance right now. Uh, you know all the the benefits of having diversity of opinion for helping both to take good risks to innovate and to avoid bad risks. For those of you who are loving the conversation, we're going to go into generational, so Gen Z, millennials, etc., because all that makes a huge impact on how somebody will perform in your company. And if you're a HR director hiring people for organizations, understanding this is such a competitive advantage for you. We'll also talk a little bit about gender as well and the impacts that has both for the person in the role, but also the organization in a little while. But you've mentioned this a few times, Michelle the term risk fingerprint. And it's a beautiful term that you've coined. And it's why there's a fingerprint on the book. And I have to share this because apart from its meaning, it's absolutely beautiful written uh, line that I pulled from the book. And risk print, fingerprint is the combination of those things we talked about personality traits, experiences, social context, that is a core component of each of our identities. But here you say, each of us has a risk personality that is as distinct as a fingerprint. Our risk fingerprints start with our underlying traits, which you might think of as ridges, arches, loops, and whorls that give us the fingerprint structure and make it distinctive. Our experiences alter the fingerprint, much as a cut might leave a scar. I absolutely love how you wrote that, but it encapsulates the exact idea of risk fingerprint. Thank you, and of course, you know I, I love I love metaphor, metaphors. You know, whether it's the the gray rhino or the the, the cockfight in my my first book, but uh, but it it really seemed to um, you know to pull together all of these different things, and and I actually have a funny story about how the, the fingerprint came 
to be on the cover and how it became to be so so big in the book. So I, I'd had a, a couple of quick references to Risk Fingerprint in the book. And when I was looking at possible cover designs, uh, it's really hard to represent risk. It's so abstract. And I'm like, I'm not going to put a roulette wheel or a, like a couple of dice. Um, that's like too cheesy, <laughs> not my style. So um, my publisher had sent an initial draft with the uh, the symbol of chaos. Uh, your, your, your audience who's into gaming will know it's, it's basically um, four arrows, so eight points um, with arrows going in different directions, uh, which I shared with a bunch of friends who are who write business books generally, and they completely got it right away. And I sent it to my librarian friend and a designer friend, and they looked at it and said, "Huh, I don't get it." I'm like, "Okay, that's not really not <laughs> not what I'm going for." So, um, so then I, I thought and I said, "Okay, well, how about this maze idea?" Because that represents choices and possible directions and, and uncertainty. So we sent it back to the designer. And uh, the, there was one design that was beautiful artistically, but just wouldn't work you know, in a little thumbnail. And, and um, somebody suggested, and I sent these out to my friends on Facebook, and someone suggested, what about doing the maze as an icon? Uh, which was one of the, the they had, he had shrunk the symbol of chaos into an, an icon. So I went and found some maze icons. And we threw those examples up. And someone said, oh, this one I saw on a Chinese menu. And I'm like, okay, that's, <laughs> that's not what I'm going for. But someone said, hey, that one looks just like a fingerprint. And it was this big facepalm moment. I'm like, I write about risk fingerprints. You know, fingerprint, identity, you are what you risk. So I went back to my editor. I said, this is, this is it. And uh, so then in the, the next draft of the book, because uh, I was already working on the final draft, I really expanded that bit about the fingerprint. So it was this beautiful interaction of, of you know, design and feedback and the real idea that I wanted to get across. So it was, it was really exciting to me. But the, the, you know, without wanting to belabor, belabor the, uh, the metaphor, it really fit perfectly. And also even, you know, what kind of experiences you have, what kind of habits, you know, if you're doing manual labor, you get, you get rough calluses. Um, if you use soft, you know, raw shea butter lotion, you get nice, uh, soft things. Um, even well, this is, this is the wild, wildest part of the research in the book was the temperature in the room. Like when it's colder, you're actually going to be likely to take more risks. Um, so just like, you know, your, your fingerprint, if you, uh, if you soak in the bathtub too long, you know, if your hand is sweaty, all of that is going to affect your fingerprint. But the, the physical environment is so important, whether it's, you know, the music you're listening to, if it's, you know, up tempo, you're going to be a little bit, uh, edgier, um, the, there's research showing that if you had spicy food for lunch or whatever meal for the next few hours afterwards, you're going to be more accepting of possible risks. Um, all of these wild things, even, you know, the color in the room, all of these, these biofeedback factors that traders, of course, pay a lot of attention to affect your you know, your, your cortisol levels, your stress levels, the, you know, the, the dopamine hits in, in your brain. And they, so there's this very strong physical aspect as well. So that's part of why I love this, this physical image as something that explains why we take the risk decisions that we do. I love that. And you know, the stuff on like olfactory senses. So how you, the sense in the air, 
the environment. I talk to organizations about this all the time, and I think they think I'm a bit crazy when I'm talking about even the artifacts in the environment or the literally the words on the wall. So your your values on the wall and all this stuff it all has a massive impact on how people think. And, you know, I was thinking there when I, you know, you talked about the spices. If I have to pitch an idea to my wife next time, that's a bit risky. I'll be like, I'll order, babe. I got this one. She'll have the spicy chicken and extra spice, please. <laughs> so um, let, let's share some of those. I wasn't going to go there yet, but let's do that because I love the stuff you share on those influences that are, are somewhat invisible. I mentioned them in the introduction. Let's let's jump there and then we'll come back to re risk ecosystem, which is another key term in the book. Sure. Yeah, but there's, there are other things like, uh, you know, whether you're a, a smoker or not. Uh, there's some research showing that people who are smokers are uh, more likely to take jobs that are more physically risky, and also uh, more likely to accept less pay for those. And of course, there is a bit of a, a chicken and the egg here. You know, you're not sure how much is correlation and, and how much is is causation. But I think that, uh, you know, there's there's also some research around, you know, addictive behaviors, and risk. And of course, you think of, you know, gamblers is the first thing that you think of. And there, there is research around uh, certain dopamine receptors that affect how you deal with risk. There's, I think, uh, if my memory serves, 124 different genetic markers, although they're, they're you know, not super well uh, understood yet. And uh, a lot of questions still to be answered about things like, like birth order, uh, from from the studies I looked at, you couldn't really tell a big difference. But uh, but you know, as an oldest child, uh, I, I think it may be a, a matter of you know that people in uh, in different birth orders have experienced certain risks uh, differently. Um, but the the research is inconclusive uh, on that. The um, you know, the colder temperatures, as I mentioned, there have been some studies with with birds as well as uh, as humans. It's just fascinating. And you think about some of the biggest decisions in your life that you're taking, and we don't think about the environment around us and how that affects it. And and of course, there are things, you know, your your age, uh, There there's a lot about the risk itself, whether it's, it's like an emotional risk or a, you know, more calculated risk, and particularly among teenagers, there's some research showing differences uh, between adults and teenagers, depending on whether it's a hot or a, a cold risk. There, there, there's so many factors, they can get quite overwhelming. Uh, but but the, the spicy food one is the one that just always sticks with me. <laughs> and I love spicy food. And actually, interestingly, there, a lot of cultures have stereotypes about people who like spicy food being bigger risk takers. There might be something to that. And then you also look at the bigger historical context. And, you know, I think of, you know, Mexico, India, you know, places or Thailand, places where the temperature is actually quite high. And you go way back to times before we had really good refrigeration. And on the one hand, the spices, you know, kill some of the bacteria, but they also hide some of the bacteria. So they're both making it less risky and making it more risky at the same time. And I think there's probably some really fascinating dietary feedback loop around risk taking and, and cultural attitudes. Well, let's jump there because we talk about risk ecosystem, but let's marry that to geography because 
where we're from also has a massive impact on how we think. And one of the great ones, one of the great ways I experienced this actually, where I looked through two lenses, which one was your book, and then about a year ago, we had the great Robert Sapolsky on the show. And we had such a great chat, one of my favorite episodes on his book behave. And it's so fascinating when you read that and your book and you put them together, because there's so much research there that corroborates each other and also complements in so many ways. But one of the ones that I found so fascinating was, and one of the studies that he shares, he talks about how if you are from an environment or a geographical region that experienced disease in the past or an outbreak of disease, you're going to be more xenophobic, and you're not going to be so welcoming of outsiders. And Again, we be we judge people the by the cover and we kind of go, Oh, that person's so xenophobic, they hate outsiders, all that kind of stuff. And we can't do that without looking actually at the geographical factors that happened in their own risk fingerprint. Absolutely. And you know, I love Robert Sapolsky's book, uh, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And fun fact, uh some uh some people believe that actually rhinos and zebras are even more closely related than rhinos and <laughs> elephants. So, so <laughs> huge fan, huge fan of his work. Um, but this, yeah, this, this, um, this geography uh, is, is a very big part of it. And these experiences, I mean, we've certainly seen it with the, you know, with the pandemic, that, you know, places that have had more recent, more serious uh, outbreaks, you know, people, countries that were familiar with, with, with SARS, uh, we're more likely to wear masks. And, and there are other reasons for wearing masks and you know, socially acceptable reasons. I went to Japan for the first time in 2008. And I had this brilliant idea that I was going to go during cherry blossom season, because Japan cherry blossoms, you know, complete, completely not thinking about my terrible seasonal allergies. And I very quickly came to appreciate the benefits of of masks. Um, but so you know, there there are countries where mask wearing it was already common, either because of pollution or cherry blossoms or or whatever, or you know, recent uh, outbreaks. And there's research. My friend Jeremy Howard, uh, a data scientist, had done a lot of research early on in the pandemic, saying that the countries that that had wider spread mask wearing were the ones that were doing quite a bit better. Uh, so that's really important. Geography is is part of it. You know, some of the co- countries that had lower uh lower infection rates were, you know, islands. But that doesn't you know, that doesn't always last and there's this sort of feedback loop too whereas if you're really successful early on in the pandemic, then your guard gets let down and think, you know, you, we've seen that with, with Israel, with, with Australia, with, with Peru. So this relationship with, with risk is, is sort of cyclical. It's a constant learning and updating process. And in terms of a, a risk ecosystem, you know, so I think that that involves some of the the historical context, the social context, but also the policy measures that are put into place. And I think it's important to think about risk ecosystems in in two senses. First, how policy protects us from the bad risks and how it encourages good risks. Education, for example, biggest financial risk a lot of people take, and it happens very early in life before their brains are even, you know, fully, uh, fully mature. And that's a risk you want to take more, you want more people to take. And countries have very, very different approaches to 
what they encourage or or what they don't. And, you know, bankruptcy laws. And the other part is not just the policy environment, but the people around you. My favorite example of this is is here in Chicago. It was it took months into the pandemic before I started uh, taking public transportation again. And the first time I did, I went out went down to the dentist. That was the, the you know <laughs> big scary moment. Um, so I took the bus. There's this beautiful express bus that goes down Lakeshore Drive, and it's just wonderful. I got on that, and you know everybody's wearing masks, social distancing, totally comfortable, beautiful view of the lake as we go down. That was awesome. On the way back, I took the the L, the you know our our subway, which is elevated part of the way, which is why they call it L. Um, oh man, I had to change cars four times. You know, kids coming on with you know the the mask under the chin or no mask and blah 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 and crowding and and it was months and months before I took the train again, and it was such a great illustration of how the behavior of the people around us affects the risk to us and how the way we act affects the risk of other people. There was some research showing that some of the most effective risk messaging around masks and social distancing was, you know, think about your grandma, you know, think about other people. The other part was, you know, something that's that's effective, that's simple, that you can do every day that that works. And so the communications that you're getting from the media, from elected officials, from you know, Twitter and Facebook, that all plays into things as well. And we we need to be aware of it. Speaking of the pandemic, because you you do dedicate time to this. um, One of the things I found really interesting was the intersection again between the gray rhino and you are what you risk. So I, I mentioned this saying in my book, the more you sweat in times of peace, the less you bleed in war. But also this idea that when you do get a warning shot across your bow, do you react to it or not? Do you take that? So you might have a health scare, you might have, you know, be called up on something in your role that if you don't book up here, book out, you're out of here, right? This type of thing. But this happened in the pandemic. So we celebrate in many ways, New Zealand as a great country that was so reactive to the pandemic, but they were actually proactive, because they had a warning shots. And so did South Korea. And I think this is a key point, because this can be used for organizations, because there's always signals of the impending change. But you have to firstly, listen for them, you have to have ways to listen out for them to detect the changes in the business environment. But then you have to make the changes. And this doesn't happen a lot of cases. And these two studies were fascinating. Such an important point. And it goes back to what I said before that you know people spend so much time listing risks and things and don't spend enough time on the response. And of course, you know, New Zealand's case was that there had been a a ranking that came out of of preparedness uh, some months before, and it had said, you know, New Zealand, you're not doing as well as uh, you should be. And they looked at that and said, let's do something about it. But then you look at, say, the United States, where in 2019, under the Trump administration, there was actually a scenario planning exercise. Uh, involving a pandemic very similar <laughs> to what we experienced. There also had been so many reports from the from the WHO, from Johns Hopkins University, from all kinds of think tanks, public health ep- experts. You know, Bill Gates talk in 2015, his TED Talk saying, you know, we need to be prepared for a pandemic and we're not. So many of these warnings and it was the uptake that was the problem that, you know, people had blueprints for what to do with it. It's like the example in the gray rhino of, of Hurricane Katrina. 
scenario planning exercise, you know, weeks before that, they had the plan of what to do. So I think we need a lot more attention to to that mechanism. We, we saw in the United States that the pandemic being very, very polarized. Uh, Pew Research uh, did a study of uh, approval of government response to pand- pandemic, and it was 14 countries. And they found that in the US, the partisan gap was 47 points, like massively wider than any other country. And so it seems to me that when it is something so crucial as disaster response um, and you know disaster pre- risk reduction and prevention, that in countries that are politically polarized, that needs to be taken away from this this really capricious uh, political de- decision making process. And I think that we need a lot more accountability for decision makers, whether it's in policy or business or, you know, personally for, okay, how are you dealing with this? And the way things work, I write about this a lot in The Gray Rhino, is that the way our system is set up is that we tend to celebrate people for picking up the mess that somebody else created, but not so much celebrating people for preventing the mess. Um, the RFK uh, uh, Profiles and Courage uh, Awards, they gave one to uh, to George Bush, um, the father, uh, for breaking his promise to not raise taxes because it was the right move to do economically. And, uh, you know, some people say, well, he paid the price for that. Other people say, well, no, it was the broader economic circumstances that cost him that election. You can debate that six ways to sunrise. But it comes down to he made a really hard political decision and it was the right thing to do. And and I'm really glad to see when organizations celebrate those difficult decisions because they're often not popular and people second guess it. You know, we, we hear about Cassandra's, you know, which has come to mean, you know, somebody who just, you know, warns in vain. But the original myth was that there was a curse put on Cassandra that she would make correct warnings and nobody would believe her. We've kind of missed that part of the myth. And what we hear too often is, you know, a politician hears, hey, here's a big danger. They do something about it. The danger doesn't happen. And then people are like, oh, you were, you, you were all upset for nothing. And so we need to do a lot better job of celebrating crises prevented and costs avoided. It reminded me of an amazing quote. So D. Hawk is a friend of the show. He's the founder of Visa. He's now going into his 93rd birthday. He wrote the, the forward for my book and it was amazing. But there's a quote by him that you'll absolutely love exactly about what you're talking about. He said, the person fi- who fights for a dying cause is admired, supported and honoured. The person who fights for a new cause struggling to be born is misunderstood, reviled and attacked. Nothing is more difficult than taking the lead in the new order of things, which absolutely nails the point or reinforces the point you're making. Because I often think about this in innovation work where some CEO or leader or some change maker within the organization is fighting for something. They are a Cassandra. They can see the way it's going to go. And the status quo by its very nature quashes them and keeps them at bay because it's like, well, we're kind of benefiting from now. We'll milk the cash cow as much as we can. We'll kill the golden goose, etc. And you see, this is one of the things I think is so important about your book from an innovation perspective or a change perspective and a life perspective itself. But But on that, 
I thought about this where the hot hand fallacy, so things worked for me in the past, I made the right calls, etc. I'm overconfident now. And I thought about that. Well, if, for example, my past experience had been negative, and that affects my risk fingerprint, and I'm less likely to take risks, I have more risk aversion. The same happens for my positive experiences in the past. And then I might think that that hand I keep playing will work out again. And confidence plays a huge role in risk fingerprints. And I thought one of the most fascinating ones I read in your book was the story of Germany and Germany in the political arena because of the history of Germany and the loss of confidence. Yeah, it was uh, it was interesting. My friend Jan Techau was was in uh, in Chicago uh, giving a, a, a lecture, and so we we got to catch up about it. And you know, in he looked at this and and really explained that the historical circumstances were a big part of why uh, Germany tends to be so cautious on on many things, uh, but that it's also lent itself to a you know safety culture. Like, why are German engineers so revered? And it goes back to this. And, and so that, that goes to the importance of different approaches to risks. You know, you want to have the methodical engineer who's, who's paying attention to the, the closest, tiniest detail. And you want the dreamer. Uh, you, you want this whole mix of people, which is, which is really important for innovation. Cause if, if you have the dreamer without the person paying attention to details, Things can go very, very, very wrong, and you know, quash the dream once, once, uh, once there's a little mishap. Uh, so it's, I think, it's absolutely important. Uh, you mentioned risk aversion. You know, that's it's a it's a term I have some uh, take issue with in the book, of course, because it's it's often applied to to women or to millennials, and so many professional women come up to me and say, oh, "Well, I'm really risk averse." Because they, it's almost like they've gotten this thing in their head, and then they talk about the careers and the things that they've done, and they're the things that too many people on the outside would say, hey, those actually are big risks. And there's something called stereotype threat, where if you if you think you're supposed to think a certain way about risk, then that influences you, and you you may be making a risk choice that's not really compatible with how you really feel, and and it's really damping dampening that benefit of having diverse uh, risk attitudes and the other part about risk averse is that the definition technically is that you take fewer risks all other things being equal and as i mentioned before all other things are rarely equal you know women are punished more severely for men if they make a mistake in a job that's seen as you know not gender typical um me walking down a dark alley at 3 a.m. in the morning is a very different risk from what it would be for for you. And the other part is that experience plays into this. There's some research showing that actually when it comes to social risks, to, to speaking up, women are actually more comfortable taking those risks than men. And I think some of that goes to women's experience. I mean, I've experienced it many times being the only woman in the room, or one of just a couple women in the room who've experienced, you know, you say something and you're either told you're too assertive or too bossy, or people ignore you, and the guy two two chairs down ten minutes later says the same idea, and everyone says, "Oh, brilliant, brilliant idea." Um, 
you know, there's a word for that, heap eating. <laughs> you know, so I, I tend to, whenever people ask me about risk aversion, I'm like, mm -mm. and some of the research on, on women and finance uh, shows that, uh, that women tend to prefer getting more information uh, and that women and men of similar background and experience actually do make very similar decisions. You do see bigger gaps uh, among uh, less experienced men and women. Uh, less experienced men are more likely to just uh, leap without doing the looking. And I mean, yes, you could say that perhaps the risk A word might approve, might apply in that situation. But um, often, you know, risk averse tends to be pejorative. And I'm like, that's that's actually a, a good thing. There's also studies showing that men who are overconfident and, and overtrade end up with lower returns. And so that ties this sort of risk reward connection there. You know, that often people say, oh, you know, no risk, no reward, but that applies a you know linear in just one direction relationship. That, you know, you take the risk, you're going to get the reward when that's not really what what happens. So I I really tend to look at risk awareness, risk savvy, and uh, really avoid using that word risk aversion because it's it's so problematic in the way it's used. Let me just heap eat that. <laughs> <laughs> that Aiden McGuire is brilliant. Did you hear what he said? <laughs> I, but it's a it's a real problem. I, I I see it all the time, and I wanted to emphasize one of the things you said in the book because you mentioned uh, the author of a book called Own It, Sally Crochank, and she paid the price for speaking up and being a threat to group th to groupthink. And we actually need those people within an organization. And I thought it was amazing what she wrote. So she said she was fired for being different, for challenging the majority opinion, for speaking up, for daring to go against the grain. And she said that calling out risk, prioritizing the long term and putting client relationships ahead of short term bottom line ultimately got her fired. You want those type of people to your point in your organization. I'm such a fan of, of hers, you know, for, for the decisions that she made uh, for speaking out, for sharing her, her wisdom and, you know, and for the work that, that she's been doing with, uh, with Elevest and, and Elevate, you know, really trying to change the way people talk uh, about and with women when it comes to investing. Well, I, I wanted to touch back on something you you were you were going into the arena of this, where, where you mentioned, for example, the the danger or celebrating somebody who comes in to fix the pieces of a broken organization, or maybe saves it, but could have actually been much more proactive and saved it from hitting the iceberg much earlier. And there's a term that is fantastic that people need to understand because we have a lot of female CEOs who listen to the show. And you said the trend of companies choosing women for CEO positions when the organization is in crisis is increasing. In, the, in other cases, boards and investors tend to take a risk on women only in situations where men fear to tread. Despite the stereotype of women being risk averse, the trend of companies turning to women to lead through crisis is in challenging potentially career suicidal CEO positions has become so common that it has its own term. It's called the glass cliff. Yeah, and I, you know, it's an experience that that uh, I can relate to very, uh, very personally. 
and uh, you know have seen a lot of of women in this position very very publicly uh, placed in these positions. Uh, many that many of them have succeeded. Uh, some of them have failed in situations I think it would have been impossible to win. Uh, and again, here's an example of, of some of the research that suggested that women in you know gender atypical positions are punished more severely than than men. And you know, it's hard. I get asked a lot about about women or or people of color uh, in in situations where speaking up is hard and potentially very personally risky, and where not speaking up, we're not doing the hard thing. Uh, is it's very risky, but then on the other hand, I I look at people who've been firsts in their field, who've done very difficult things, and to me, I think mean, they're they're role models. They did it, and for me, that's even more powerful than if they didn't succeed. I mean, because I actually think it's an important message to get across that that sometimes you're going to fail, and that's you know that's part of the the learning process. And so it's um, it's very very difficult making those sort of career choices. And uh, in, in my Chicago launch, actually, that, that question came up. And uh, Peter Kredikos, who's quoted in the book with the, the Institute for Work and the Economy, uh, weighed in. I had a bunch of the uh, the people who were interviewed in the book who were part of that launch, which was so cool. Um, but Peter said, you know, that's where allies come in. And Peter has been one of those people who is a fantastic, you know, white male ally. And it was actually a a, a, a male friend of mine who told me about the, the heat heating term. Yeah. And so I think part of the the challenge in those situations is to make sure that uh, you know that that other women step up to uh, you know to support uh, the woman, and and you know women are susceptible to some of those stereotypes as much as anyone else. And you know I remember when when Sheryl Sandberg came out with with Lean In, and uh, a lot of women really jumped on her uh, for saying that, including some people with whom I'd had private conversations uh, about exactly the same issue that you know you know they. They felt like they hadn't stepped up when they they wanted to, and uh, so I think that um, we all need to be more conscious of when we pile on to somebody for uh, for not having succeeded, and when they are put into a difficult position to think about how we can be supportive, whether it's someone we know and you know can offer concrete support, or whether it's someone that we don't know and we can support by not sniping. Yeah, it's a great point, Michelle. And you know, you think about the the Cassandras or the gainsayers who speak up. And you, you've got to again, look at the environment in which they do that. And like history shows us it doesn't always end well, rarely ends well for a whistleblower, very difficult for them even to find new roles within other co companies. And we celebrate them. But at the same time, you kind of go, Whoa, that was risky. And look at how it played out for them. And we need if you want to call them corporate whistleblowers, f for the internal team to be able to kind of go, whoa, I call it here, there's a grey rhino, there's an elephant in the room, there's a black swan, whatever, whatever animal we want to call out that we we do that. And we have the psychological safety, as, as you say, to be able to do that. But I, I wanted to share another thing I mentioned earlier on about the value of the risk compass or understanding the risk 
fingerprint of somebody I'm trying to hire. Again, if I do know the type of culture I'm trying to build, and then I'm going to go, I need to hire somebody of this type of risk fingerprint profile versus this type of person. Understanding then generations becomes really important because I found this fascinating. So somebody who witnessed, for example, their parents in the 2008 financial crisis lose their job or their uncle or somebody like that grew up into that. So their risk profile is going to be very different. And it, and this then affects stuff like, you know, because we often think, oh, well, those millennials, they don't want to buy houses and they don't want to buy cars and they don't get married, you know, all this kind of stuff. But you kind of go, well, you got to look at the where they were born into the environment in which they were born. And then on top of that, I mentioned about the, the marriage. Did they have divorce in their world? Because that impacts their own risk fingerprint. All this stuff has a massive impact. Absolutely. And it's it's also this sort of interaction between the personality and experience. Uh, I found, and some of these people are interviewed in the book, is that some people will go through a harrowing experience, whether it's, you know, having started a business and failed or having some big, you know, political event, uh, you know, knock you out of the water that you have no control over. Some people come out of that saying, well, if I got through that, I can do anything. And some people come out and just shrink. Uh, you know, it's it's like, uh, you know, we always think about, you know, immigrants or refugees as, as, you know, taking risks. But, you know, the calculation of, okay, I stay in this country and almost definitely die, or I go across these dangerous waters in, in a raft, and I might die, you know, that's actually pretty good <laughs> risk choice. Um, but, you know, in the book, it's interesting, I, I talked to adult children of Holocaust survivors, uh, you know, who talked about, you know, the parents, you know, be really becoming very conservative. And uh, they, you know, they passed on a lot of that to their children. Uh, and a friend who's a CEO of a family conglomerate in Central America, who's in his 40s. And there's a huge generational gap where the older generation who lost a lot of uh, the company and of what they owned during the, the civil wars uh, were all about preservation of capital. And the younger generation who was kind of taking over with the leadership were afraid of becoming obsolete and just, just shriveling away into the future. And, and I asked him, I said, well, have you talked to people about why they feel those, that, that, you know, that, that way about those risks? Why is it important to the older generation to preserve capital? And, you know, that was, well, they want to preserve capital for the younger generation. And like, okay, well, why aren't you listening to the younger generation? And it was a real, it was a real spark for a conversation. And with millennials, it's interesting. You see a lot of these, these headlines, just like with women, oh, you know, risk averse. Um, but you go into the conversations and you see the people, it's not that they're risk averse, it's that they're weighing things very, very different, differently. They want a job with, where they're going to be supported, where there's an upward path, uh, where they feel there's some value to what they are doing. And those are actually things that, that reduce risk and that, you know, increase uh, career potential. Or you look at, say, the finances, you know, the cost of college has gone up ridiculously. And they come out with tens of thousands of dollars of student loans. And you look at this, you know, crazy toppy stop, stock market and seeing that interest rates are likely to go up, seeing that, you know, price earnings ratios are at, you know, ridiculous historical levels. Is it a better bet to pay down your debt, which is, you know, and, and I, I, forget, I don't know what student loan rates are right now. I think they were, they were about 8% when I 
you know, had mine in the early 90s, they're probably less than the B, even so, you know, a, a, a guaranteed return by paying down the debt. Um, or, you know, are you going to have a, a rainy day fund? Or are you going to put your money into Bitcoin or GameStop or, or God knows what? I mean, you know, there, it's different circumstances around the choices than what, uh, than what they were. And I actually just got a very interesting question from a, a Chinese reporter. You know, the book just, just came out in China. And uh, they were making a point about uh, Chinese youth actually having had a very different experience from Western youth. I mean, you see this, this huge reduction in, in poverty uh, in, uh, in the past decades. And, and so this also changed, changes depending on, you know, somebody's country, their socioeconomic circumstances, all of that uh, goes into the, the differences. And, and, you know, with the houses, it's funny, like all of a sudden, all the headlines now are, oh, the housing market is, is not going to, to fall, because all of a sudden, all the millennials are, building, buying houses. And I'm like, okay, well, two years ago, it was millennials don't want to buy houses. And, uh, you know, so, so some of these, these headlines, you've got to take with it with a big grain of salt, because they are so fickle. And that, you know, they, they do make a lot of generalizations about risk and certain demographic groups. And something is really important to recognize is that you need to look at the range within uh, within gender, within demographic group, uh, because while there might be a certain average, there's a lot of difference within that. And you need to have the individual conversation rather than generalizing and making assumptions. And one of the things you said there, which was interesting was, for example, um, marriage rights. So we say, you know, there's, there's talk that people are getting married later, all that type of thing. But you're kind of you say also, well, you got to zoom out again and have a look at that because they're getting married later because they're more tolerant. They're they're it's because of their fingerprint, their risk fingerprint, and they're actually going well. If I'm going to do it, I want to do it right. And actually knowing yourself more. Back to your point about the leadership training, knowing yourself more, asking yourself questions of what do I want in life helps you know yourself better. So you're able to find a better match for you, and then you can actually start thinking about things. Where do we? Where do we work together in the tolerance perspective of all these kind of things? And then that correlates with a lower divorce rate as a result. It's also societal change. I mean, in my parents' generation, not getting married was the biggest social risk. And people are calculating it very differently today. Uh, there was a, a, an online conversation I was involved in a, a, a couple months ago, where one of the things I often do is that we put in the chat, uh, you know, what's the biggest risk you've ever taken? And one of the answers was, uh, and, and I followed up with, you know, what's the biggest risk you've ever not taken? And uh, because often those go right together. And one of the participants said, you know, never getting married, I would not risk getting married. And so the whole definition of, of risk has changed uh, generationally, and certainly among among kids. You know, divorce was seen as a much bigger risk. It was much less common in uh, earlier generations. And so, you know, kids who have seen more divorce, uh, you know, women who've got more job opportunities, who've who've got more choices. It's a completely different risk calculus from what it used to be. Last one for you, because I, I think this is so important to say, you, you, we mentioned about, you know, all the different things that are, impact our risk, um, a fingerprint. And one of those is, so many of us are 
if you think about privilege, privilege is so invisible for us. Like I, I was only saying this to somebody this morning. I, I grew up in such a beautiful part of Ireland in in a wooded land, and we had such a beautiful view. And I had no idea because I was born into it, so I didn't I didn't know any better or any worse. But privilege has a massive impact on our risk fingerprint, where we come from, the experiences we have, the poverty we may experience, all these things. But one of these, and I wanted to share this because it's such a beautiful, beautiful story of somebody who just battled through that, is the story of the lady you interviewed, Jermico. She's amazing. So if you've seen um, Beyonce's Lemonade video, she's wearing that awesome hoodie with the, the, the zipper, the swap out hoodie. Jermico did that. Um, and uh, I met her in Chicago some time ago, and she's just this amazing, amazing entrepreneur. She's won all sorts of uh, awards and honors, and she's just fabulous to talk to. But, you know, she was a little girl growing up in the South and, you know, didn't understand the risks of saying certain things, you know, a, a, a little black girl in the South. And um, she ended up, her family ended up moving her to Chicago because they didn't feel like it was safe for her to be in, in the South. Um, and she had, um, she was just amazing. She went out and she created the network of people that she needed. And some of that was just people who who saw her promise, you know, early employers, you know, they saw how much she had going for her and actually took it upon themselves to give her the advice that she needed to, to, you know, lift her up. And then she learned to do that herself. And she's now uh, trying to help younger African-American uh, uh, people in Chicago to, uh, you know, to learn some of the same entrepreneurial skills. But it was, it was just absolutely incredible to, talk to her and to see how creative and innovative she was, you know, not just in the clothes that she makes, but in how she navigated a system that was not set up to make it easy for her. And uh, she was just such an inspiration. And, and it was really an interesting juxtapos juxtaposition against some of the other entrepreneurs that I interviewed. And uh, one of them is a, is a, is a college friend um, who, uh, you know, grew up in a family in Texas, uh, who very openly says, I was able to go out and become an entrepreneur because I knew I had my family to uh, to fall back on, that, that I had that privilege. And these these two contrasting stories illustrate a point in the book is that, you know, if you feel you've got nothing to lose, or if you feel you've got a big cushion, those are the people who are most likely to do the things that from the outside we think of as the biggest risk. It's it's the people in the middle who've who've got something something to lose, um, but not a huge cushion, uh, who, you know, may have a job that they stay in too long, uh, who may not be making the kinds of risk decisions that are the best for them and who need to, to really be a lot, uh, a lot more self-aware about risk to, to, to optimize the risks that they take. Well, it's been a brilliant conversation as always. I have a I have a quote that I want to use as my parting quote, but I want to leave you the final word of today's show. But where can people find you? Because I know you're about to board a plane and go to Dubai and do a talk. It's a fascinating talk, actually, because, you know, we, 
we've talked about this before, the cop out of the black swan and you're kind of going, that wasn't a black swan, really. You know, you just ignored it. It was a grey rhino coming for you. And you have this fascinating combination of a talk you're doing in Dubai. Yeah, so black swans, uh, grey rhinos and uh, and dragon kings should be fun. But uh, people people can find me uh, through my website, thegreyrhino.com with an A, although the, the E will get you there too, but the A gets there faster. Um, I'm active on Twitter at Wooker, W-U-C-K-E-R. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I write uh, not as regularly as I intend to. Uh, but uh, you, know, you know where good intentions lead. But but hopefully I'll be increasing the, the frequency of my my column there uh, as well. And I I love connecting with people and uh, and hearing from them. And you work with governments. You work with companies. You do keynotes all over the world as well. Well, yeah, lately it's been more virtually. This is actually going to be the first pl- time I'm on an airplane since before times. Um, I do <laughs> workshops. I'm trying to do a lot more applied workshops where people have a specific gray rhino that they want to deal with. And I help take them through the, the five-stage uh, analytical framework. And then with uh, with URO Risk, helping them to develop better, uh, healthier risk cultures within the organization to understand their own personal risk fingerprints and that of the, the organization understanding better the the ecosystem that they're in and uh, and keynotes often I, I love uh, applied stuff you know big macroeconomic trends uh, that's 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 what I really really love but I I really do love also helping people to uh, to apply uh, these ideas so very very flexible in that regard fantastic and Michelle one last thing what are you seeing what are you what do you believe the big rhinos coming for us at the moment are in the world in general? Well, I come from a you know policy and and finance and economic background, and so that lens shapes it. And I, and I always encourage people to figure to to see what their own gray rhinos are, because that's how the concept is most powerful. But so from my particular point of view, uh, for quite some time, I've been looking at the intersection of three gray rhinos: the climate crisis, uh, financial fragilities, which includes you know asset bubbles, high debt, uh, and and inequality. And all three of these uh, reinforce and make each other more dangerous. And uh, one of my favorite observations from the gray rhino is that the zoologically correct word for a group of rhinos is a crash. Fantastic. I love it. I love it. I'm going to quote a little uh, part from the book that I loved that I thought was a nice final message. And then I'm going to give the mic over to you to close today's show. This was a quote I loved. It's important to be aware if you are being stereotyped by others, and especially if you find that you are letting risk stereotypes affect your own choices. If you are, find ways to override what people think you are supposed to think and do, and own your own behavior. Though the group we belong to plays a role, not everyone is as susceptible as others to the group dynamics. The different experiences of groups go to show how risk ecosystems, the support systems, the events that define the era, the preconceptions of others have of us all affect our risk fingerprint. Being aware of those influences can help each of us consider risk more wisely and to be understanding of why our friends, relatives and colleagues make risk decisions that they do. The good news is that most of us are more capable of improving than we might think. Understanding how our pasts have shaped how we perceive risks and respond to them helps us to identify and develop empathy towards others with different stories and lives, which is such a powerful skill. And that, my friends, 
is why this book is such a great read. It's been a pleasure sharing the work of Michelle Worker once again. Michelle, over to you. What's your final message for our audience? Thank you so much. It's always wonderful to to talk with you. But I think you've, you've really uh, picked a perfect way to to sum it up. Is it to to really think about self-awareness, risk self-awareness. Uh, there's a, a statistic that we make 35,000 choices every day, give or take, I assume. Every one of those risks is a choice. Every one of those choices is a risk. And way too often, we are we are taking risks without understanding why. And so once you really delve into your own risk fingerprint, it can open your eyes to how you see the world and how you interact with it. One of the most powerful experiences of this book was the people I interviewed at the end of the interview, just their eyes getting big and saying, I learned so much from the questions that you asked. And so I'm hoping that readers will have the same experience that a lot of the interviewees did. Author of You Are What You Risk, The New Art and Science of Navigating an Uncertain World, Michelle Worker, thank you as always for joining us. Thank you. And as always, thanks to our sponsor, Zai, a global financial services company specializing in foreign exchange and payments and supporting innovation in all its forms, including this show. You can check them out at hellozai.com. That was so much fun. Thank you. Thank you. It was great. I, I always learn so much from you. It's such a, a great chat always. Thanks so much. 